India is part of a military alliance with Japan, Australia and the United States against China. The quadrilateral security arrangement. Because India is part of the quad, they changed the US Pacific Command to US Indo-Pacific Command. That's Vijay Prashad and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Vijay Prashad on radical views from the Global South. The concept of Global South and Global North are not geographical terms, but rather describe a grouping of countries along economic lines. The Global South, previously called the Third World, is a term used to identify lower-income countries on one side of the so-called divide, the other side being the countries of the global north, with its enormous wealth and its institutions of power and control, the WTO, the IMF, and the World Bank. The pandemic has created a kind of vaccine apartheid. Take Africa, for example. Only a few of its 1.3 billion people have been vaccinated. The haves of the global north keep most of the vaccines for themselves, while the have-nots of the global south scramble to get doses. In this program, Vijay Prashad presents perspectives and analyses rarely discussed in the media. Vijay Prashad is a historian, journalist, and educator, He's the director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research based in Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, and India. Additionally, he's chief correspondent for Globetrotter. He's the author of many books, including Washington Bullets, A History of the CIA Coups and Assassinations. I talked with him on November 18th, 2021. Good to see you again. Welcome to the program. It's great to be with you. Come on. Well, let's talk about the COP26 Glasgow Summit. You were there. Greta Thunberg said COP26 even succeeded in watering down the blah, blah, blah. George Monbiot in The Guardian called it a suicide pack. What's your assessment of the conference? You see, David, the first thing is, I wish that it were merely blah, blah, blah. In other words, I wish nothing came out of it. You know, uh, that would actually be better than what did come out of it. Now, there's the expectation we have, which is we would like to go to some kind of post-carbon emissions world. And that certainly is not on the table. So if you're looking for a post-carbon emissions set of policy frameworks that didn't happen but something worse happened i was looking very carefully at any conversation that might have taken place around agriculture um, you see this is important for many reasons one is that we know that agriculture produces carbon emissions but also methane emissions um, the second great greenhouse gas they didn't have a special day for agriculture. You know, there were special days for different issues like finance and so on. They had a day for nature where in the um, discussions of the official COP, they talked about deforestation and so on. 
but they didn't talk directly about agriculture. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, deals were cut. Um, the United States and the United Arab Emirates, for instance, these two uh, came together and they produced something called Agriculture Innovation Mission for Climate. AIM4C is the hideous acronym. What this is doing is this is going to enable agri big agribusinesses, you know, the so-called ABCDs, Archer Daniels, Midland, Bunge, Cargill, Louis Dreyfus, these big agricultural trading companies and high-tech companies, you know, uh, whether it's what is now called Meta or what used to be Google and so on, Facebook, I mean, and Google and others, they are going to now start dominating agricultural markets. Uh, this is exactly what the Indian farmers have been fighting against. It's going to allow ag tech, agricultural technology firms and digital high tech firms to dominate agriculture in the name of climate preservation. They use phrases like game changing. It is game changing, but it's not going to help the climate. It's essentially going to Uberize agriculture. It's going to make small farmers, agricultural workers and so on uh, come to the level of the Uber driver. In other words, the farmer takes all the risk and the big firms make all the money. Uh, that's that was on the table at COP went by unremarked. And interestingly, the second issue at COP was that they made coal the big issue. The boogeyman was coal. This was a convenient way for the advanced developed countries to point their fingers at India and China rather than have all uh, greenhouse gas emission um, you know, energy sources on the table, including oil and natural gas. They put oil and natural gas aside and focused on, on coal. This meant again that the West could look like they were the good guys and China and India were the scofflaws. So you had these backroom deals cut, uh, such as on agriculture, and then you had this focus on coal in order to paint China and India as the ones who are responsible for the climate devastation. So I wish there was just more blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately, there was not enough blah, blah, blah. There was much more diabolical things going on. You were part of a people's tribunal. There was a virtual media blackout of its activities. Uh, explain what you were doing there and what conclusions did you reach? Many years ago, Bertrand Russell, the eminent philosopher, decided that since nobody was paying attention to the U.S. war on Vietnam, he decided to set up a tribunal, you know, a people's tribunal. And it was called the Russell Tribunal. Um, a delegation went to Vietnam. They talked to people there. Um, they had uh, direct frontline access to what the war was doing to the Vietnamese people and so on. Then they had a meeting and they listened to witnesses. They asked the U.S. government to appear. U.S. government didn't appear. And then they made a judgment. And I think this idea of a people's tribunal, which comes from the Russell Tribunal, is very important. Um, it was done for Palestine. There was a people's tribunal through the auspices of the Russell Tribunal system. Uh, there was one on Palestine. Well, various climate NGOs decided to hold a people's tribunal where in the dock they placed the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Now, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change is the formal group 
that produces these COP meetings every year. COP stands for the Conference of Parties. And this is the 26th Conference of Parties under the auspices of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So we decided to put the UN framework on trial and we heard a series of witnesses. A young woman from the Philippines, for instance, talked about what she called climate trauma. Young people who are growing up in these high risk areas traumatized by floods, by rising sea levels, by catastrophic weather and so on. Um, We had representatives come and talk to us, experts talk to us about how the fossil fuel industry is subsidized to the tune of, and David, I bet you can't guess how much per minute uh, is there subsidizing fossil fuel companies. The most reasonable estimate is $11 million a minute, $5.9 billion last year. Doesn't actually seem like a lot of money, frankly, given the amount of money that Uh, fossil fuel companies make. It's small potatoes. And yet that's the kind of money that's spent on on subsidizing fossil fuel companies and so on. So we had experts give us their opinion on those issues. And and we heard a range of people. And then we had a jury. Uh, I was very proud to be on the jury because one of my co-jurors was Ambassador Lumumba. Now, people may remember that Ambassador Lumumba was the representative of the G77 plus China at the 2009 uh, COP meeting. And at the end of the meeting, he burst into tears because he said this is a betrayal of the peoples of the planet, a man of great feeling, not only of intelligence, you know, remarkable intelligence, but of great feeling. You know, you don't often see world leaders cry in a sincere way, you know, you see them cry in an insincere way, but this was a deeply sincere, heartfelt thing. He was very important to have on the on the jury. And of course, the jury, as you'd imagine, found the UNFCCC to be guilty. Uh, guilty of what? Well, the standard of guilt was they were guilty of violating the UN Charter. You know, the United Nations Charter is the, the one of the texts, perhaps the only text, with the widest consensus of member states, of states around the world. You know, almost all the 200 countries that belong to the UN system sign on to the UN Charter. There's no other text that has as much consensus. And we looked at the UN Charter, its various articles and so on, and showed that the UN Framework Convention is in violation of many of them. By the way, not the least of which is the lack of regard that it gives to non-state civil society actors who are not corporations. The actual official COP was held at the Scotland Enterprise Centre, which was built on reclaimed land, land that had been the Queen's Dock on the Clyde River. Uh, For those who know anything of Britain's history, uh, the Queen's Dock was the second most important port of the British Empire in the British Isles. Uh, from which the jute from Bengal would be offloaded to be taken to Dundee to be converted into jute fabric. And the wealth taken out of the plantations of the Caribbean and Americas would be brought into Glasgow, which at that time was the second most important city in the British Isles. Well, that was the exact spot where um, the cop official cop was held. And it was teeming with government officials, corporate lobbyists and corporate executives, plus 
uh, Prince Charles. But none of the climate activists, none of the indigenous leaders and so on had a regular role inside the official COP. They were delegated to the people's COP at the other end of town. And this is one thing that you can definitely find a UN uh, process guilty of, that they violate the UN Charter. They haven't brought the voice of the people in. And then a sequential uh, series of violations, uh, which include, for instance, lack of regard for uh, due process. Again, taking the highest form of science uh, seriously, uh, engaging the well-being of people in the planet. I mean, the small states, association of small islands and small states was barely given any space in these discussions. You know, whereas they should have been the ones leading the discussions, you know, the Marshall Islands and so on should have been at the front. So we found them guilty and then we we offered a sort of sentence which demanded that the $37 trillion sitting in illegal tax havens, illegal, by the way, by the standard, not of mine alone, but of the of various international institutions, $37 trillion. These countries have actually signed a pledge to put $100 billion every year into a climate fund. They have put pennies in uh, to the dollar into that fund. So we said, why not just sequester the $37 trillion sitting in illegal tax havens in order to help countries, particularly of the South, make the transition from carbon to a less uh, climate changing fuel and so on. We passed a sentence which had a series of, of measures that uh, we demanded. Uh, of course, as you said, very few people paid attention. Tell me, is uh, Ambassador Lumumba related to Patrice Lumumba, the assassinated uh, head of the Congo in 1960? I mean, he's not related at all. Um, and I think he's named most likely for Patrice Lumumba. I'm glad you brought up Patrice Lumumba, David. I didn't really fully realize or digest the fact that one of the reasons why Lumumba was assassinated is that part of the Congo has an immense wealth of, uh, of uranium ore. And these uranium mines were key. It is from those mines that the uranium was brought that was then made into a bomb and dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's actually important to reflect on this because, you know, it was made a lot of in the People's Cop that the largest institutional polluter of carbon in the world is the U.S. military, the largest institutional polluter. And nowhere in the official cop was the question put to the table of demilitarization. The link between carbon pollution and the military is well established by now. And it's not discussed in official channels. Talking about the, the UN for, again for a moment, and it's uh, Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres, uh, you begin your 46th uh, newsletter quoting him uh, saying, our fragile planet is hanging by a thread. We are still knocking on the door of climate catastrophe. It is time to go into emergency mode or our chance of reaching net zero will itself be zero. Now, Guterres has been sounding the proverbial alarm of a planet and its people in danger for some time, but with minimal effect. 
Antonio Gutierrez has been pretty good on at least making all the right noises. Um, the statement he made at the beginning of the COP was a pretty powerful statement. And I think this is a pretty powerful statement. But the United Nations is only as effective as those who have power over the system. And let's be frank. I mean, the United States has an overwhelming power in shaping some of these discussions. Overwhelming power. If the U.S. wanted to move the boat in a certain direction, the boat moves in that direction. Right now, it's facing some modest challenges, you know, from China and Russia and others. But these are not countries able to move an agenda. You know, even at this COP, um, the Chinese and the Indians were on the back foot when they were blamed uh, for diluting the final draft. Just to give you context on this, the final draft that came out, the Glasgow Pact, had the phrase phase down coal, not phase out. And everybody, including the Swiss delegate, made a lot of noise in the hall saying, you know, India and China are basically betraying uh, the whole COP because they undemocratically changed the language. Okay, very interesting statement. Just a few days before this pact was agreed upon or put to the table, the Chinese and the U.S. signed a bilateral agreement. This was on the side. In that bilateral agreement, there was already the phrase phase down. So the phrase phase down was not just put in by Bhupinder Yadav, the Indian environmental minister. The, this term of art had been used in the China-U.S. bilateral agreement that will phase down coal. Now, the United States very conveniently sat in the background and said, look at Bhupinder Yadav. You see, India is doing this, but the U.S. is one of the major utilizers of coal. You know, India, China and the United States are the three big users of coal. The reason India and China look like they are much greater users of coal is because both India and China are currently competing with uh, who has the biggest population in the world, 1.4, 1.5 billion. United States population, 370 billion. Per capita, the United States is one of the greatest uh, users of coal to power its you know, energy. So US, India, China are all in this. But very cleverly, this uh, was put to the press that it's India that uh, violated the whole thing, you know, phase down and China as well. So these challenges coming from China, Russia and so on, they can't actually define the terms of the discussion. That the United States still defines and the press coverage, I mean, it's remarkable. You know, I, I watched after the last day, I watched the way in which they defined the failure of the COP. The entire onus, burden for the failure of the COP was placed on India and China. That was it. These are the countries that have basically screwed the whole thing up. Wow. That was really interesting to see the mighty Wurlitzer, you know, play the tune. And everybody from the liberal press to the conservative press, everybody, you know, in fact, I should say even some of the Indian press was repeating this same story. It's incredible. And speaking of uh, Lumumba, uh, you write about him in Washington Bullets, a history of the CIA coups and assassinations. Yes. And look, the fa fact is that Lumumba is a very important person uh, for the history of 
the third world in fact the history of the world i mean the assassination of patrice lumumba 1961 doesn't just happen in 1961 it repeats it happens again in 1987 when thomas sankara is assassinated it happens again in 1994 when chris hani is assassinated you know every time africa produces a genuine working class hero a person who stands for the rights and liberties of the mass of the people they seem to get killed uh, i said chris hani i could go on chokri belaid chokri belaid the great leader of the tunisian people when the arab spring took place chokri belaid trade union leader played a role in 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 bringing the tunisian working class into that struggle and right after when a new tunisia was being created he is assassinated you know today Tunisia is hanging on a thread between dictatorship and collapse. The role that somebody like Chokri Belaid could have played in Tunisia today, you know, in South Africa, where the ANC has been corrupted by power and money and and so on, what could Chris Hani have done there? And in Mali, you know, and in Burkina Faso, two countries also saw assassinations of different kinds. What would they have been like? you know let alone the congo i mean when we talk about a meeting like cop 26 imagine if chris hani was there representing south africa uh, imagine if chokri belaid was representing tunisia the, the entire atmosphere would have been different we wouldn't have had the boris johnsons and the emmanuel macrons and the you know joe bidens going unchallenged and that's what it was david they went unchallenged and you could add to that list uh, Salvador Allende, Hakobo Arbenz, uh, Mohamed Mossadegh, uh, a whole series of uh, world leaders uh, that from a progressive left point of view uh, were eliminated. We are in a global pandemic that uh, shades and influences everything uh, on the planet. But uh, it's really curious that in developing the vaccines that are now available and that are largely going to the global north overwhelmingly africa for example has only 5% of its population total population that has received even one jab even one uh, inoculation but the way this was rolled out was through massive public subsidies taxpayer money into developing these vaccines and then mysteriously they're turned over for private profit to large big pharma multinational corporations uh, moderna and and pfizer and and the others so you have public risk and then private profit so the whole thing has become a giant bazaar uh, where you go in and shop around and it's become an atm you know money making machine for big pharma really existing capitalism as uh, chomsky calls it public takes the risk invests private corporations benefit it's a heartbreaking thing one is the actual covid-19 vaccine you know i mean there there's a enough pressure for something called the people's vaccine uh, to just put out there the possibility that anybody can manufacture it at scale and give the jabs to people let's not have this be in private hands anytime there's an emergency of this kind uh, let's just get the the formula and put it out there now of course this is not as easy as it sounds because 
Many countries don't have the manufacturing capability. This has been worn down through IMF pressure. You know, this idea of comparative advantage. If somebody else is better at producing, let them produce it. So, you know, India, for instance, produces almost all the world's syringes. Indian vaccination rates are also not in incredibly high. This has something to do with the poverty of people, you know, and, and also the, in, the public health infrastructure is not there. But there's something else related to this. Obviously, I'm not a scientist from that side, but I, I, I have been talking to lots of people because we've at Tricontinental been producing a lot on this, this issue and this theme. I'm told the mRNA technology, the so-called messenger RNA technology, itself is a real breakthrough, not only for COVID, but for other vaccines and other things. And uh, Moderna's uh, you know, money making now because they have the proprietary rights to the mRNA, the messenger RNA technology. This was highly funded by government money and other monies that are not their own investment. Um, and I mean, I would like to see not only the conversation of the people's vaccine, you know, get the jabs all over the world, but also when there is a breakthrough like the messenger RNA, shouldn't that go into the commons in order to help develop other forms of uh, vaccination or other forms of delivery of medicine? Because it might actually be valuable in all kinds of things. I'm told it might have impact in cancer, uh, you know, healing and, and all kinds of things that I don't know enough about. I'll be the first to uh, see. But I still feel like some of these more generic discoveries, you know, generic in the sense that they could have other applications. We should really consider whether these should be in private hands or whether this should be, I don't know, through some sort of United Nations protocol or just some sort of human sensibility. We decide this goes up on the web. You know, why does this have to be held privately? Like let other people work on the messenger RNA and produce different uses for it. Apparently, there could be many potential uses. You're listening to Vijay Prashad, Radical Views from the Global South. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, A History of the CIA Coups and Assassinations, by calling us at one 800 444 one nine seven seven. That's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or go online. Our website alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are offered free of charge. Just call us at one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Let's uh, talk more now about uh, Africa, literally the forgotten continent. Uh, let's start with uh, what's happening in Sudan. Uh, a couple of years ago, the longtime uh, dictator Omar al-Bashir was uh, overthrown. But recently, uh, in late October, there was a military coup. There's been a popular uh, resistance to it. What's, what's going on? Uh, in the Sudan? What are the forces at work there? Yeah, it's a very interesting story, uh, what's happening there. You know, there was a popular uprising um, that overthrew the government of Mr. Bashir, who had ruled for many, many years. Um, 
it's very clear that in countries like Sudan, in countries like Egypt, in Pakistan as well, these are three emblematic cases. The military is not merely a military, David. You know, it, it has a role in the economy. You, you know that when you're in Pakistan, you can go to the bazaar in Lahore. And if you say, well, I need to buy myself a soap, you could buy soap with a label that says Fauji on it. Um, it's basically produced by the military industries. Military is a big landowner in, in Pakistan, uh, produces a lot of agricultural goods. Egypt is the same. The Egyptian military is one of the big landowners. Egyptian military is a landlord for rack renting in agriculture. They are real estate speculators. They own factories. They produce cement. And similarly in Sudan, in Sudan, the military plays a big role. And by the way, the man who is now at the center of things in Sudan, General Burhan, you know, is well known to General Abdul Fattah al-Sisi of Egypt because they studied together. Um, and they come from, therefore, a similar military tradition. You know, Egypt and Sudan border each other. They've had a very close relationship. Um, and again, in both cases, highly involved in the economic life. So when this popular movement overthrew Mr. Omar al-Bashir, who had a you know, very fraternal relationship with the Sudanese military, when they overthrew Bashir, the military was not going anywhere. You know, this is a parallel story to the Arab Spring or what happened in Egypt where Mr. Mubarak was removed. And by the way, Mr. Mubarak's sons had actually annoyed the military because they went in a neoliberal direction, you know, getting the uh, Mediterranean front land in Alexandria and trying to develop it into hotels and so on without the military involvement. Um, there was a problem between Mubarak's sons and sections of the military that were very much about their control of the economy. Anyway, when Mubarak was removed in Egypt, Mr. Tantawi, who was then the general in Egypt, made sure the military was part of the transition. And because Mohammed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood didn't uh, you know, cooperate fully, they threw him out. And uh, Abdul Fatah al-Sisi came into power, a general who then puts a suit on. Well, similarly in Sudan, um, there's been a process ever since the overthrow of Bashir uh, to create civilian rule. Now, it's of course true that during the pandemic, there were lots of flaws, mistakes. The power sharing agreement between the military and the civilians was not going very well. Uh, you know, there were various protests and so on. And then the military just decided to do what militaries often do. Um, they just decided, sorry, uh, we're done with you. Uh, you know, you can now go. And uh, Mr. Burhan led this coup d'etat on the 25th of October of, of this year, setting aside the civilian uh, rule. Now, the question is, let's be frank, you know, ever since the overthrow of Omar al-Bashir, uh, it's not like it was truly a civilian government. Even after that period, it was a government that was ruling in, at the behest of the military. And there was no democratization of the economy out of military control and so on. But nonetheless, the civilian sections, the massive teachers union, the Sudanese Communist Party, these big formations, plus a lot of popular organizations had a role that they were playing. And I think now the Burhan and others decided the CC road is the better road. They've junked the civilian process. You know, what's going to happen is Mr. Burhan is going to put a suit on. There'll be some sort of election and he will become the president of, of Sudan. Now, have we not seen this before? Uh, we just saw this, as I said, in Egypt. And did we not see this in Pakistan on a regular basis? You know, 
um, Mr. Musharraf puts a suit on. Uh, Ayub Khan, even even though there was no legitimizing process, uh, you know, the one day he's a general, there's a coup. Next day he puts a suit on and says, "Well, I'm the head of the government. Uh, that's it." This is a familiar story. It's not a Sudan issue. It's an issue of uh, countries where the military plays a big role as a force of, you know, uh, maybe statecraft, uh, where the military has an overwhelming role in the state and in the economy. Uh, how does the military get to be like that? It's part of our colonial inheritance. The very great Samuel Huntington wrote a book in the early 1960s, I believe, uh, called Political Order in a Changing Society. What Huntington argued was in third world countries, the only force of modernization is the military. And Huntington called this military modernization. So in colonial times and after colonial times, it was seen as acceptable, you know, by these countries uh, to allow the military to have a big role. But this is a catastrophe for democracy in our parts of the world. We can never accept this. Talk about... Ethiopia and the ongoing conflict there. Could you could you sort it out? There's the Tigray region, which has experienced a famine, very high rates of COVID-19, uh, etc. What's going on in Ethiopia? It's one of the largest countries in Africa with 100 million people. It's really complicated and difficult to sort this through. Uh, just recently, the president of Ethiopia won the Nobel Peace Prize. It's difficult to sort through because there's a fog of war that has been uh, put around the Ethiopian conflict. The Tigray war is between two political forces inside Ethiopia. One is the prosperity party of, uh, of, the, pres of the president and the other is uh, of the TPLF, which used to rule in Ethiopia. I mean, the TPLF is not some marginal force. It was the governing force. And there's a issue here about how to even put this because Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, uh, you know, has made it quite clear that uh, he has said that the TPLF is operating as a terrorist way. You know, this is a had been a very powerful, unassailable force in Ethiopia. It, it, it was at one point, as I said, the governing force. Mr. Ahmed has said that they are operating in a terroristic way. They are not um, accepting the laws of the land and so on. The TPLF, on the other hand, is saying Mr. Ahmed is conducting genocide against the Tigrayan people. I, I actually don't think the TPLF is being honest here. When they governed the country, were they so open to others and so on? It's a very, I don't want to be facile here, David, but it's a very complicated and, and, and disturbing event, which unfortunately is being reduced to again, a narrative that is going to be familiar to people. There's a central government that's being genocidal against a minority in Africa. You know, that's how it's being framed. I don't think this is entirely the case. I think the TPLF has a lot to answer for in terms of the way uh, they have behaved both in power and uh, since losing power. It seems to me from what I understand talking to people around and in this conflict, um, that the TPLF is using this as a way to come back to power. This is what they feel is their road back to office in Addis Ababa. And I, I don't think this should be set aside. It's not merely a genocidal government. We have this uh, cliche when we think about African politics that 
the government is genocidal. I mean, this is how Omar al-Bashir was characterized regarding the war in Darfur. And I think there's a way in which we look at, say, the current conflict in Ethiopia or the conflict in Darfur or indeed uh, what occurred in Rwanda, the genocide there, in a very facile way. You know, now um, Mr. Paul Kagame of Rwanda is given a free hand because uh, Mr. Kagame will, will now utilize the genocide of his people as a way for him to send troops into eastern Congo or most recently into Cabo Delgado province in Mozambique. You know, Rwandan troops went there on behalf of the French government to quell an insurgency that was making it difficult for French Total, the big oil company, oil and natural gas company, to manage its natural gas fields off the coast of Mozambique. What made the Rwandans enter Mozambique to quell an insurgency there? Why did they go? Well, they went on behalf of the French and you can't criticize Rwanda. Uh, It's very difficult because they have also utilized the terrible violence visited in Rwanda in 1994. But I'm just saying that, you know, when we think about Ethiopia, there's so many details that need to be confronted, details of what the TPLF uh, have been doing and why there is this war between the TPLF and the central government in Addis Ababa led by Prime Minister Ahmed. You know, there's details that we need to get and not fall into the cliche that it's, oh, it's another African country conducting genocide against its own people and so on, or that it's tribal warfare. You know, that's the other way in which it's discussed. Talk about the ongoing war uh, in Yemen. Uh, it's usually painted here in the U.S. media. It's simply a proxy war pitting Sunni Saudi Arabia versus uh, the Iranian Islamic Republic, Shia Islam, Sunni Shia conflict. Uh, is that an accurate way of understanding what's going on in Yemen? You know, at Tricontinental a few weeks ago, we did a full newsletter trying to explain the current situation in Yemen. Uh, It's a humanitarian catastrophe, as everybody knows, and so on. Um, Yes, it's true that this is part of a broader regional crisis between Saudi Arabia and others. But that's not the main issue. You know, this is a long story. Uh, These are the kind of birth pangs of a region trying to come out of earlier British colonialism, and then secondly, out of the immense power that Saudi Arabia has on the peninsula. Um, You know, when uh, the British were finally defeated in 1962 uh, by one insurgency after the other, um, Yemen was split into two halves. Uh, The bottom half became uh, a Marxist republic led by uh, two Marxist parties, which then came together. And they governed South Yemen, you know, for near three decades. Uh, It's a similar story to Afghanistan, David, because these were people who immediately decided that if you are a Marxist running a very poor country's government, the first thing you have to do is to take care of literacy. So as in the People's Democratic Republic of Afghanistan, the South Yemeni Marxists sent people out to increase the literacy of the population, very low literacy. Uh, at the time and so on, with no resources. North Yemen uh, went in a kind of Nasserite direction. There was a Nasserite Republic put in place where Mr. Saleh was the um, head of government. 
Well, when, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed and eventually South Yemen couldn't find the way to um, proceed with the uh, left kind of project, um, the two Yemens united in 1990, but it united by South Yemen being absorbed by North Yemen, um, by Mr. Saleh's government basically coming in and becoming the national government. There really hasn't been a proper accounting uh, of the power imbalances of the North and South. There hasn't been a proper accounting uh, of radicalization of sections of the Yemeni uh, population by the kind of radicalism exported by Saudi Arabia. You know, we talk about the war between um, the Houthis uh, who represent a brand of Shiism. You know, by the way, the this brand of, of Shiism used to have the Sultan of Yemen comes from that tradition. This predates British colonialism. So it's not like this is some ragtag group of people. You know, they have a, their own claim to Yemeni history. Um, it's a war between them and, and Mr. Hadi, who saw himself as the heir of Mr. Saleh. You know, he would be the next great, uh, you know, unifying leader backed by the United Nations and backed by Saudi Arabia. But they are not the only two protagonists in this battle. The third protagonist is Al-Qaeda, which controls part of the coastline of, um, of Yemen. Uh, that area of Yemen is now basically controlled by one variant of Al-Qaeda or the other. Uh, it's become a very ugly battlefield of different kind of political forces. They are squeezed between, in a sense, the Saudi government, Saudi radicalism, which is easily exported to Yemen. They share a, a very large border. And it's squeezed between this kind of old elite that developed out of the government of Mr. Saleh since 1990. You know, there are these contending forces and the Houthis play a role in this because the reason they came to dominance, David, is they were able to, in a sense, militarize their resistance to the government more effectively than anybody else. Now, it is suggested that the reason they were able to militarize their resistance is they were assisted by Iran. Um, that's what the general sentiment is. And that's what the Saudis say, because they would like to see this as a regional conflict. Saudi Arabia defending the Yemenis against Iranian intrusion, you know, because the Shia is a minority in the region. So they want to say, oh, the Shia are coming in to dominate Sunnis and they want to communalize uh, or make it a religious sectarian conflict. Actually, in my opinion, this is a much older trajectory. Saudi Arabia will never allow and has never wanted to see any kind of Republican Islamic government on the peninsula. It hates that there's a Republican Islamic government as close as Iran. Look, frankly, when the Shah of Iran was governing in Iran, the monarch, the Saudis had no problem with the Shah. Actually, this is not a Shia Sunni conflict, in my opinion. You know, that's not the nub of it. The nub of it is the Saudi royal family does not want to see a Islamic Republic. This was interesting. It's after the Islamic Republic comes in Iran that the antipathy between Saudi Arabia and Iran goes to a fever pitch. Let's talk about Asia or in U.S. military parlance, the Indo-Pacific region, which a Pentagon spokesman called the most consequential in the world. Now, there was a big uh, deal made uh, between uh, Australia, the United States, and the United Kingdom. Uh, it's known by the acronym AUKUS, 
and it was for submarines. Uh, actually, initially, France thought it had the inside track on this deal until it was uh, outfoxed or outflanked by Washington and London. Now, the deal is for nuclear-powered submarines. What is the significance of this? And again, does this playing into the whole notion of surrounding China with military bases and, and sophisticated weaponry? When I first heard the name AUKUS, I thought this sounds like a villain from Lord of the Rings, the Eye of Sauron and the, you know, the Axis of AUKUS and so on. Sounds very threatening. Uh, Indo-Pacific is entirely a military term. It's not a familiar term. It's not a term that develops out of our social histories. This refers to the fact that India is part of a military alliance with Japan, Australia and the United States against China. That military alliance is called the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Arrangement. This predates AUKUS. Because India is part of the Quad, they changed the U.S. Pacific Command to U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. This was done precisely to stroke the ego of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. But anyway, they changed the name, brought, made it Indo-Pacific to bring India into this game plan. I don't need to speculate about these things. In U.S. Indo-Pacific Command's own texts tell you directly the major threat they feel is China. Uh, all the guns are pointing to China. The Chinese keep saying, stop pointing the guns at us. We are not pointing any guns at you. It's very clear that the Quad, the AUKUS, all these arrangements are about China. It is very clear. It's also filled with contradictions because in some way, AUKUS was unnecessary. Already you have the Quad. Australia is already involved. Already you have the five eyes, you know, these are the five settler colonial countries um, that are involved in an intelligence sharing network. They include United States, Canada, uh, United Kingdom, New Zealand and Australia. It's interesting that all five eyes are the anglophonic settler colonial countries. They have an in intelligence sharing arrangement. You already have five eyes. You already have the quad. Why did you need AUKUS? AUKUS was to my mind, a so pseudo security mechanism to masquerade as security when it's actually an arms deal that they were stealing from the French. The French had already put a lot of money into this deal to produce diesel powered submarines to Australia. Australia is a signatory, David, both of the non-proliferation treaty and of the Treaty of Raratunga. Treaty of Raratunga is important. It's a treaty that says the South Pacific must be a nuclear-free zone. Australia is a signatory of that. Uh, now, they say that we don't want diesel-powered submarines. We want nuclear-powered submarines. And so they are going to bring a nuclear-powered submarine into the nuclear-free zone area. This is already near violation of the Treaty of Rarotonga because they say it's not nuclear weapons. It's nuclear-powered. I'm going to come to that in a minute. A link to that nuclear non-proliferation. They are saying, no, no, we are not bringing nuclear weapons. I am very suspicious about all this because it, we already have evidence that other countries that make these deals with the US, the US will say it's an Australian submarine. It's nuclear powered. There will be nuclear weapons on it, but they will be under the command of a US detachment on board that submarine. So technically, 
it's an Australian sub that carries a U.S. weapon that is under the command of a United States military officer on board that vessel. They could do this. This is very possible because those nuclear sub powered subs can carry nuclear weapons. I worry about these things. These are the kind of loopholes. You see, the Queen uh, Elizabeth, the big U UK warship, uh, is now in the South China Sea patrolling, doing these so-called freedom of navigation patrols. It has on board 200 US Marines. What are they doing there? Why does a British warship need 200 US Marines? What are they carrying? Are they carrying US short range missiles, nuclear missiles on board, uh, the Trident type of missile? What are they doing there? There's no transparency. They just say, well, there's 200 US Marines on board. Why? You know, next we'll get a press release when these Aussies subs enter the water. We'll have a press release. There's six U.S. soldiers on board the Australian sub. Why? Is it carrying a nuclear weapon? This is going to firstly be a violation of Treaty of Rarotonga, violation of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And it's certainly going to set the teeth on edge, not only in Beijing, where they have said we are very concerned about this, but you know where the real destabilization is going to take place? It's not Beijing, David. It's in Pyongyang because North Korea is looking at this very carefully. The day after AUKUS was um, announced, the North Koreans made a statement saying we are going to test even better um, deterrence missiles. I mean, I think this is nuts. Didn't they game plan? Not what the Chinese would do, but what the North Koreans would do. This is going to destabilize whatever fragile detente exists in the region. And I don't think the Yanks and the Brits and others thought this through, at least in terms, I think they forgot that North Korea is part of the equation. They're so focused on China that they forgot North Korea has nuclear weapons. What about the issue of uh, Taiwan? The nationalist army of Chiang Kai-shek was defeated on the mainland in 1949. Its army flees to Taiwan, where it has become quite a developed and economically prosperous country. President Xi of China, like all Chinese leaders before him, have said unequivocally that Taiwan is an integral part of China and there must be reunification. Uh, what do you think about this issue? Before coming to Taiwan, David, let's just step into Hong Kong for a minute, because it, there's some relationship between the two. Hong Kong was taken by the British as the spoils for the defeat of the Chinese in the Opium Wars. And it was held for, I think, a 100-year, 150-year lease. In 1997, the lease expired and Hong Kong was handed back to the Chinese government. Now, let's go to India. In 1962, the Indian government decided that Goa, Daman and Diu, these three areas of uh, what was on the territory of India, but under Portuguese dominion, that the Indian army was going to enter these three areas and force the Portuguese out. And the Indian army took Goa, Daman and Diu by force. In the same way, as in 1948, the Indian army entered Hyderabad and reunified Hyderabad into India by force. So before we go to China, let's recognize that from India, we have a very good precedent of the Indian army reunifying what the Indian government sees as an integral part of India. On the one side, Hyderabad, which was not 
helped by a colonizer. Hyderabad is very much the parallel with Taiwan. Imagine if Hyderabad had remained outside India and then 50 years later, the Indian government decided to take it back. Okay, I'm just saying they did it immediately. They didn't wait. If the Chinese army, the people's uh, the Red Army had crossed the South China Sea in 1950 or 51 and taken Taiwan, it would be like what happened in Hyderabad in 1948. And if the Chinese had moved on Hong Kong in 1950, 51, or let's say 10 years later, it would be like what the Indian government did to Goa. But they didn't. They waited till the lease expired in 1997. I mean, you can't think of a more uh, law-abiding uh, you know, uh, situation than how Hong Kong was brought back. I mean, India didn't abide by any law, just sent the military and seized it, right? This is 62. Remember, the African Portuguese colonies remain with Portugal till 1975, 13 years later. And they were also defeated by armed struggle, okay? So, you know, in 62, nobody was anticipating the fall of the Portuguese colonies. Portugal thought it would hold Goa, Daman and Dew forever. Anyway, I'm just saying all this because I want people to understand that what's happening with China and Taiwan is not some special sui generis case of a country that wants to seize a part, you know, an island sitting on. No, this is an issue that's there as the detritus of our colonial histories and the histories of our nations coming to be. The issue is Taiwan is now a well-established place. And it is also true that there are political forces in Taiwan that see Taiwan as a part of China. That's got to also be said. There are political parties in Taiwan that are not opposed to the idea of one China. And I would like to say that the right-wing sections in Taiwan are also believers in one China, but they would like to conquer the rest of China. Everybody believes in one China, David. The question is who is going to control it? And I think that's how we need to understand this. It's a complicated issue, David, but I don't think it's sui generis. I think this is very much the case uh, of other ambitions of nation states that come out of colonialism. The Argentinians and the Falkland Islands, for instance, is a case in point. It's, it's a case that remains a hot issue in Argentina, even though Argentina was defeated in a war with Britain in the 1980s, it remains. In, in Argentina, they still call it Malvinas. They still claim those islands. You know, uh, This is not a, a something that's unique to the situation of China and Taiwan. It's really about uh, the post-colonial situation and dealing with our own lands and how, how to shape them. We'll stay on that and we'll be talking to you again in the future. And I'd like to thank you very much for being part of Alternative Radio. Much appreciated. You know I love Alternative Radio. Always there for you. Thanks a lot. You were just listening to Vijay Prashad on radical views from the global south. Vijay Prashad is a noted historian, journalist, and educator. He's the author of many books, including Washington Bullets, A History of the CIA, Coups, and Assassinations. I talked with him on November 18, 2021. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 36th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Tarek Ali, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, and Arundhati Roy. 
We also have a series of programs featuring Vijay Prashad. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Vijay Prashad, Radical Views from the Global South, and his book, Washington Bullets, A History of the CIA, Coups and Assassinations, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are offered free of charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. CGSW. 90.9 90.9 FM, traveling from the University of Calgary, the land of the people of the Treaty 7, Indian Nation of Alberta, Region 3, musical destinations unknown. Oh boy!